students. Welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019 Lecture 13, The Malabarante Thieves, Hypocrites, and Deceitful Counselors. We are going to try and get through Cantos 21 through 26. Today's slides 217 through 251. We are biting off quite a bit. All right, so we saw the Malabranche at the very end of the lecture, last lecture, uh, our introduction to the Malabolgia. Remember that the name of Circle 8 is the Malabolgia. That means the evil ditches or evil pockets. Well, now we meet the Malabranche. That word branch means claws, essentially. So Malabranche means the evil claws. An evil claws indeed. These Malabranche are described like uh, conventional devils. Devils that come from the medieval uh, comic dramatic tradition. There were these comic plays where there would be these creatures with cloven hooves, uh, horns, and often bat wings represented. That is how we generally represent Lucifer, Satan, and demons even to this day, usually with red skin as well. The idea being that they're infernal, that they're on fire, that uh, red is in some way uh, considered bad, uh, sort, sort of an image of violence. In any case, the leader of these Malabranche is named Malakota, and we'll focus on him in a moment. I want to just explain a little bit about this particular ditch, though. The sorts of people in this ditch, Bolja uh, 5 out of 10 in Cantos 21 to 22, are Barators. Barators are corrupt warriors or politicians. Most politicians, especially the highest level, even president until uh, uh, two of the last three presidents, are lawyers. Uh, every president we ever had until our current president and, uh, and George W. Bush have been lawyers. And so if you want to be a politician, usually what you do is do something like study political science at somewhere like Harvard, and then you go get a law degree also somewhere like Harvard or Yale, and then you go into politics. Well, it's the same case back in the day, too. And in fact, Something you might not know is that until late until the 19th century, there were only three uh, degree paths in colleges in America. You could become a lawyer after college, you could become a doctor, or you could become a priest. And what's funny is that when I ask young people even today what they want to be, usually if they're talking about getting higher education, they say something like, oh, I'm thinking about being a lawyer, or I'm thinking about being a doctor. It's like those are the jobs that just rise to people's minds. In any case... The first thing we see in this, these highly dramatic cantos is one of the Malabranche holding two stumps of feet of people. What they do here, these evil claws, is they each have hooks. And what they do is sort of an infernal version of fishing, which is based on an infernal idea of what Jesus does. Jesus was described not only as a shepherd, someone who tends to a very vulnerable flock, sort of like the idea of being the mind or the thing that thinks and keeps people safe? Well, he was also described as a fisher of men. Well, think about that. That makes perfect sense. You see somebody, you pick them out, you choose them to be, uh, well, I, if you're choosing somebody to be the fish for men, they're going to be a what for mankind? A sacrifice, because you eat a fish. This is a negative version of that. These demons will throw their hooks into boiling pitch, that's boiling oil, essentially, and catch you if you emerge. In fact, uh, some of the sinners are described as being like dolphins showing their fins in the water because they'll just move their back out of the uh, pitch for just a moment so they'll have some relief. And during that moment, the devils will throw their hooks, catch them, reel them in, and then dismember them. And you say, what's the contrapasso to that? What's the retaliatory element? say, well, think about what a lawyer does. Just as 
they dismantle arguments, so are their bodies now being dismantled. And think about what a bad politician does. Politicians are meant to keep communities together and healthy. Well, what would a bad politician then do? Divide them. Divide them and pull them apart. And so, what's a good punishment for these politicians then? To, to physically pull them apart. And you say, Mr. Schmidt, there's not a horrific medieval torture that has to do with pulling people apart. And I say, that's not the focus of this class, but it is called drawing and quartering a person. And quartering. Think about what a quarter is. It's one-fourth of something. Well, if you've been quartered, you've been reduced to one-fourth. Where are the other three-fourths? Well, they've gone the other directions. The old idea was this, that you'd be tied to four horses, and then they would either be struck by a goad or uh, hit with a brand, and they would all run in four different directions, and, well, they're very fast, and they would run with pieces of you. And so, this is a famous way of dealing with people who attempt to um, uh, sow political dissension. Hmm. Hmm. In any case, let's keep moving. These two cantos are very famous for having two elements that we don't see very frequently in the Inferno. One is dramatic elements. They're introduced dramatically, holding two, uh, holding two feet. They're, it's even dramatic when Virgil goes to talk to them, and Dante has to hide. The idea being that they would run towards Dante and try and Hook him. I, right, this is the idea. With their pitchforks. My goodness. Technically, they're hooks. They're also sort of funny. There are a few funny elements. There are elements of humor in here. Uh, when Virgil says that he, the providence of God is what is taking him through the Malabolgia, Malakota actually opens his mouth and drops his pitchfork. It's an overdone, it's an exaggerated reaction. Like something I would do if you were like, Mr. Schmidt... Can I have an extra day to do this assignment? And I went like, what? And then dropped this on the ground. You would understand that I was trying, that that was not my actual reaction, but that I was doing that in order to be funny to illustrate a point. It's the same thing here. The next element that's sort of funny, which is extremely vulgar, is how uh, <laughs> Malakota, I don't even know why I put this on here, maybe just because uh, you know sometimes you connect through low things, sometimes you connect through high things. But um, in any case, Malakota, when he salutes his troops, when they're sent alongside as a retinue for Dante to protect him, actually to ambush him, that's the idea, is he makes a, he salutes them by making a trumpet of his, uh, this British English, arse, which means he farts at them in order to uh, salute them, which is itself also an inversion because you usually salute by touching your head, not your rump, by looking forward, not by looking backwards, by uh, uh, yeah, in any case, I think you get that. Something I want you to be clear on is this. These devils are not Dante's friends. Dante has the right idea about them. When he thinks they are trying to trick him and Virgil, he is correct. They say that the bridge to the sixth ditch is broken, and that Virgil and Dante must follow them to get there. They are leading them, essentially, like if you were to meet someone from Classical Academy and they were like, hey, come to this alley with me. Um, uh, and you're like, oh, this is a shortcut? And they're like, yeah, yeah, man, it's a shortcut. They do not have Dante and Virgil's best interests in mind. They are trying to take them somewhere so that they can rip them apart. Dante senses this. Virgil gets this wrong. This is at least the second time Virgil's instincts have been incorrect. When was the first time that he did not know what to do in a situation 
and got and had needed help. Yes. Uh, when they were entering the gate of this. That's right. With the fallen angels, he didn't have much clout with them. We needed a heavenly messenger. In this case, we will need. Uh, uh, we will actually need a distraction that will be provided by one of the sinners. And so Virgil again comes up short. He is trusting of the Malabranche when he ought not to be. That's part of the whole idea behind fraud. It is a misuse of the intellect. Whereas someone usually uses their mind to bring people together to help them. Fraud, you use your mind to divide people. Hmm. Okay, we have another piece of direct address. It's our fifth part. You don't need to know this. It says, Oh, you who read, hear now of the new sport. This new sport. Each turned his eyes upon the other shore. He first who'd been most hesitant before. Ah, yes. And here's a beautiful picture. I think this is just a really beautiful picture of Alecchino and Giampolo. Here's a bit of drama we have. I'm going to describe it very, very, very quickly. So, uh, I'm going to read just very quickly. So, that we catch a sinner. The Malabranche catch a sinner and we get to see how they're dealt with. The Navarese in the nick of time had planted his feet upon the ground Then, in an instant. He jumped and freed himself from their commander. At this, each demon felt the prick of guilt and most he who had led his band to blunder, so he took off and shouted, You are caught! But this could help him little. Wings were not more fast than fear. The sinner plunged right under. The other flying up lifted his chest, not otherwise the wild duck when it plunges the assembly precipitously when the falcon nears and then exhausted thwarted flies back up. Okay, what happened here? Ah, but Calcabrino, right, raging at the trick, flew after Alecchino, or Alecchino. He was keen to see the sinner free and have a brawl. And once the Navarese, this is Jean Paulo, had disappeared, he's being described by where he's from, that would be like calling you the Escondidan or the San Marcan. He, uh, you know you would be called San Marcan, that's kind of a weird thing to call you. He, he turns his uh, talons on his fellow demon and tingled with him just above the pitch, but Alecchino called him well. He was indeed a full-grown kestrel, and both fell into the middle of the boiling pond. He was so quick to disentangle them, but there was still no way they could get out. Their wings were stuck in meshed and glue like pitch. All right, what happened? The Malabranche caught a sinner named Jean Paulo. That sinner then showing why he is amongst these barators, then made an infernal agreement with him. He said, if you let me go, I will send back seven men in my place. I will sacrifice one of, or I will sacrifice seven of them for one of me, which is the opposite of what a usual sacrifice is, which is where you like say sacrifice yourself for multiple other people, like you fall on the grenade for your unit. That's the whole idea behind a sacrifice. It's a numbers game, which I suppose is why it's even more beautiful if you just die for a cause or one person, um, because it's not a numbers game at that point. In any case, uh, this man, then during a moment of hesitation, runs and jumps right into the boiling pitch, which you might imagine is like out of the frying pan and into the fire, but escapes these demons as they chase him, they miss him, and then they turn on each other. And the idea seems to be that that's the point of fraud. There is no honor amongst thieves. That um, uh, uh, Plato makes this point in the Republic that those who are evil will always be defeated by those who are good because those who are evil cannot trust each other because they know they will turn on each other. And I think that's a very strong argument. And I think that's illustrated here as well. And so, during this moment, as you can see from this picture here, Dante and Virgil get... They slide down a cliff face, and they get away from the Malabranche. And in fact, for several more lines in the next canto, canto 23, uh, Dante is like kind of moving fast and very, very nervous that the Malabranche are going to catch them because 
Imagine, I mean, these people have hooks, they can rip you apart, and they take pleasure in it. It's horrifying. But they are kept from leaving their ditch by the divine providence. They are the guardians of circle eight, ditch five, the Barators. They cannot go on to the sixth ditch. And so, luckily, Dante and Virgil get away. So they, they have something to be thankful to one of the sinners in help for, that distraction. In any case, we now enter... The sixth bulge, the bulge of the hypocrites. Hypocrites, we're not going to focus on very much, but you need to know a couple of things. To be a hypocrite means to say one thing and do another. So if I say you need to work really hard in life, student, students, and then you come see me in my personal life, I'm sitting around eating Doritos, not doing the work I have, you might be like, Mr. Man, you're a bit of a hypocrite telling us to work hard when obviously you don't work hard. And that would be true at that case. So what is the punishment of these hypocrites? Well, they appear one way, and they're actually another. They have very bright, beautiful cloaks on. But inside of those bright, beautiful cloaks, they have lead. they're covered in lead. They're full of lead, so they move very, very slowly. So they appear bright and exuberant, like they have good lives. But in actuality, they have terrible, heavy, weighed-down lives. It's like somebody who appears happy on the outside, but is actually very, very, very depressed on the inside. In fact, you know what profession is known for that? They appear very happy and make people happy, but are usually uh, not so happy themselves. They're a certain sort of performer. Social media. Comedians. Comedians. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, but this is the essence of the story. There is a man who was very sad, and he came to be visited by another man. And the second man who came to visit the first said, How can you be sad, sir? Don't you know that Gonzo the Clown has come to this village, and has come to make us all happy? And the first man responds, Ugh, oh, but you see, you've made me even less happy. Why? For I am Gonzo the Clown. Who, who, makes, the, who makes the entertainer entertained? Who watches the watchman? Who heals the physician? The idea is that you have to do what for yourself. You have to entertain yourself. You have to heal yourself. You have to educate yourself. All right. Uh, when we talk to these, um, these hypocrites, two things I want you to know. I need you to know the Italian name they call themselves. The Frati Guadente. That's where we get the word uh, fraternity from. It also comes from Latin. As well as, um, let's see, fraternize with people. As well as fratricide, when you kill a brother. Uh, the Frati Guadente are the jolly friars. And so they're hypocrites because they were supposed to be friars. They were supposed to be poor. But apparently during their lives, they enriched themselves. So they go around preaching, Yay, you can be poor. You can be poor. All you need are gifts of the Spirit. All you need are gifts of the Spirit. While collecting their massive money and <coughs> eating their, their food. Gluttony is bad. <coughs> it's like, I don't know if you should listen to me if I'm saying that sort of thing. In any case, they also tell Dante and Virgil that Virgil was lied to. And actually Virgil hangs his head during that time. He's very disappointed in himself. They say that actually the sixth bridge that you were told was broken. Uh, well, there is some rubble there, but you can climb up it. So these Malabranche deceived Virgil. And so Dante is starting to see that. And I want you to understand this process. When you first have a teacher or a parent, you put full what in them? Especially because they're leading you somewhere. Close to hope. Trust. Right. But over time, with both your teachers and your parents, you start to realize that they do not know what. 
Everything. And so, there are gaps in their knowledge and their skills. Well, if you want to know more than they do, what do you have to see for yourself? You have to see the truth for yourself. You have to find out facts for yourself. Dante is starting to realize that he can't rely on Virgil for everything. He's going to have to think for himself. Because what does he not deny the good of? The intellect. So he can learn for himself. So it's okay if his guide is imperfect. And I would say that in general, it is okay if your guides are imperfect. Your teachers do not know everything. Your parents do not know everything. They may know a lot and they may wish to guide you. Who must learn what you must know? You must. You must. Good. All right. All right. Uh, let's see. Closer to the... No, I don't want to read this. Uh, well, yeah, so I'll, I'll read what's told to Virgil. It makes him sink his head. Uh, 23, 133 to 144, just very quickly. He answered, closer than you hope, you'll find a rocky ridge. This is one of the Ferrati while Dinti speaking. That stretches from the great round wall and crosses all the savage valleys. It's talking about a bridge across the Malabolgia. They said that here it's broken. Not a bridge. But... Where it's run slope along the bank and heap up at the bottom, you can climb. My leader stood a while with his head bent. Then said, he who hooks sinners over there gave us a false account of this affair. At which the friar, I love, I love this quote. I'm definitely putting this on a quiz. In Bologna, I once heard about the devil's many vices. They said he was a liar and the father of lies. Two things about that. I think we all think, ha ha ha, that's kind of sort of funny. Obviously, the, the devil is a father of lies. But interesting that he would be described here as being represented by one of his lieutenants. The devil did not tell Virgil a lie. One of the demons did. It's almost like the idea is that the devil speaks through anyone who lies. I want you to keep that idea in your mind. Because when we do get down to Lucifer, Satan, the devil, he will not speak. And so the idea that we're starting to see is that he does not speak himself, but he speaks through those who lie. He speaks through all the sinners in hell, which is a very sophisticated idea. In any case, there is one last hypocrite. We see he has a very special punishment. Yes, as you can see, he is horizontally crucified on the ground. This is very clever. His name is Caiaphas. He was the Jewish high priest during the time of Jesus who argued for expedience. That it would be expeditious just to kill this uh, this would-be Jewish prophet named Jesus. That he's causing a whole commotion rather than reasoning with him or dealing with him in a sort of civil way. Probably best just to kill him. Why is he therefore crucified horizontally? Because it's more expedient. Yeah, when you crucify somebody, you, you put them on the cross when it's still horizontal on the ground, and then you put it up. Well, what was more expedient here in hell? Just to leave the crucifix on the ground. Just to leave it on the ground. And, well, that I just say that because this is one of those special punishments in hell. He's the only one that has this punishment. Very, very, very particular. We'll see somebody else who is involved in the death of Jesus with his own specific punishment as well. His name will be um, uh, uh, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve apostles who sold Jesus out. Alright, in any case, gotta keep moving. Let's get to the thieves. Yes. The thieves themselves, this pit of vipers, this pit of snakes. Okay, the thieves, the third bulge of the day. What is their punishment? Their hands are tied behind, they're naked, as all the sinners in hell are. 
Their hands are tied behind them with snakes that are biting them. Uh, then there are several derivations on the punishment. Several things can happen. They do get attacked by snakes. And when they are attacked, we do see one person catch, uh, catch a flame, burn to dust, and then get reconstituted. Like an infernal version of the phoenix. As you know, the phoenix is a mythological creature that supposedly lived in the Egyptian city of Heliopolis. Which would, when it got old, would uh, burn itself up, turn to dust, and would reconstitute as a baby phoenix. And so it was, in a way, immortal. You see that same image in even Harry Potter uh, in modern day ideas. A lot of people know what a phoenix is. Like, a lot of people know about the mythological creature like the griffin or the dragon, which is very interesting. Other sinners, when they're bitten by snakes, will then transform into snakes. And yet another sinner will transform into some horrific four-legged, six-legged looking snake. And you say, why does the snake have legs? And I say two interesting things about that. There is some evidence that snakes did once have legs, like normal reptiles. Also, biblically speaking, the reason that a snake doesn't have legs is that it, in the Garden of Eden story, convinced Eve to eat the apple, and so part of its punishment was to go about slithering on its belly and to have enmity between it and woman. And so, uh, sort of interesting there. These people seem to have some connection with deception and snakes in the same way that the snake in the Garden of Eden deceived Eve. It's like a snake is a person who uses their mind for some advantage over other people. And in fact, we do say that about people who are cold-blooded. We say you're a snake. We even represent uh, antagonists as snakes. Again, Harry Potter, the main bad guy, Voldemort, looks like a snake. Doesn't have a nose. And in fact, in the very last book, the last Horcrux that needs to be destroyed, spoiler alert, is a snake, of all things. Hmm. We find another centaur down here, a monster. He's described as having a dragon on his back, and his name is Cacus. The reason that he is down here and not amongst the violent is because how he was killed was by Hercules after he stole Hercules' cattle. So he was a thief, and then he was killed because of it, so he's down here. The characters we're going to focus on here is we find five Florentines, and at the very beginning of Canto 26, uh, Dante will actually praise Florence for, all, for having its name so well known in hell, which is very funny um, and very deeply ironic and... Uh, Mm, it, it's, that's what you would call acid prose. He's really throwing something mean out there. In any case, this funny Fucci is described as the most arrogant man in hell explicitly by Dante and will actually flick off God. Now, the medieval way of flicking off, all of a sudden the students all look at me. You want to know how they do it? Is he got... You may have seen this gesture before. And it's funny how gestures change. And... Also, depending on where you go, know the hand gesture so you don't make a mistaken one. But you take your thumb, you put it between your forefinger and your middle finger. Bam. And then you wiggle that thumb. Is it that, like, the Chinese middle finger? I don't know. I don't know. I've never been to China. Um, but, yeah, you wiggle it like this. And it's like, and then that's what he does to God of all people. All right, this Monty Fuji. I want you to hear what he has to say, because like I told you, the sinners down here don't necessarily explicitly lie, even though they're very dishonest. 
I want you to see the dishonest misuse of language that Vani Pucci has. He does not lie, but I want you to see, and you're not going to have a lot of time to think through this, so think fast. What is it that he does that is a misuse of language? Mule that I was, the bestial life pleased me and not the human. My goodness, you know that this is quite the person. He's being pretty honest about himself. I am Vanifuji, beast, and the den that suited me, Bastoya. And I to Virgil, tell him not to slip away and ask what sin has thrust him here. I knew him as a man of blood and anger. So this is a bad dude. The sinner heard and did not try to feign, that means to uh, pretend, but turned his mind and face intent toward me and coloring with miserable shame, that means he turned to red, said, I suffer more because you've caught me in this, the misery you see, than I suffered when taken from the other life. Well, notice that the sinners who get the deepest down here, they're more ashamed to be found deep in hell than they are to talk to uh, Dante. In fact, some will actually try not to be seen by him, especially down in Circle 9. There will be a character named Boca that actually Dante kicks him, uh, tries to rip hair off of. He kicks him in the head. <coughs> I can't refuse to answer what you asked. This is very interesting. Apparently, he can't outright lie. There's something about his placement in hell that requires that he tell the truth. So he has to uh, use the truth in a very different way. I am set down so far because I robbed the sacristy of its fair ornaments. He stole from a church. He stole from a church. That's what he did. And someone else was falsely blamed for that. So not only did he steal from a church, he had someone else blamed for doing it. And so he got off scot-free. Sort of. Uh, but lest this sight give you too much delight... If you can ever leave these lands of darkness, open your ears to my announcement here. Castoria will strip herself of blacks, that's the black Guelphs. Then Florence will renew her men and manners. From Val de Magra, Mars will draw a vapor, which turbid clouds will try to wrap. The clash between them will be fierce and impetuous. Mars, the black Guelphs, there's going to be a fight between the blacks and the whites, and the blacks are going to defeat the whites. The whites are the, uh, they are the, uh, um, Excuse me, they are the political party of Dante. He is prophesying the loss of Dante's political group. He says that in order to hurt Dante. What is his misuse of truth here? What is he using the truth as that is inappropriate, that all people can do, and that they often do when they are angry? He is using the truth as a what? He is using it to harm Dante. He is using it as a what? Yes? As a weapon. Right. He's using the truth as a weapon. I want you to think about that because one thing that Virgil does several times, not only on Gerion, but also in the wake of Medusa, is he what's Dante from certain revelations. He protects him. So it is the case that you can use the truth to hurt somebody. You can say something really mean to someone. And it might be a true thing. And you might even say this. How many of you have said this before? I'm just saying the truth. Someone's like, you shouldn't say that. And you're like, it's true, isn't it? Anybody ever heard themselves or someone else say that? Well, that's exactly what Bonnie Fucci does. To use the truth inappropriately is to not be true to yourself, in a way. In any case, I did want you to know that. Ah, oh, yes, and he explicitly says, and I have told you this to make you grieve. I told you what I told you, not to enlighten you, but to hurt you. Which I would say, as a teacher is certainly something that is inappropriate for a teacher to do, but is definitely possible. You see people's grades. You see where they are. You could definitely say something that was true, that was mean, and yet the whole job 
It's like if somebody say not doing so well, you throw that in their face, or you try and raise them up a little bit. And it's a very delicate balance. It's a very delicate balance. Because sometimes you have to give somebody a quiz and it says something like 36 on it and you have to have a hard conversation. You don't want to be mean, but you do want to be honest. And I would say with humans, using the truth appropriately is a very delicate thing. The truth is a delicate thing and people are delicate beings. Be careful with the truth. And that is the idea here. Interesting. Huh. Alright, good. We have another piece of apostrophe. You don't need to know this either. It's the sixth time. If, reader, you are slow now to believe what I shall tell, that is no cause for wonder for I who hardly saw it, hardly can accept it. Alright, we have something very interesting happen here. So as I told you, amongst the thieves, amongst the snakes, if a snake jumps on a person and bites them, they can then uh, uh, either burn up or turn into a snake. That seems to be because the snakes that are around are also sinners. They just keep turning one into another. The people have become snakes. The people are cold-blooded. These people are wanators. Things that predate predators. Yes, predators. In any case, Dante now takes this opportunity to make a direct competition between himself and two epic poets that he met <coughs> down in Limbo. They are Ovid and they are Lucan. Now, Lucan, very famously in his Pharsalia, had two people uh, afflicted by snakes in the Libyan desert. Apparently these were very poisonous snakes. These characters were named Sabellus and Nasidius. Now, Nasidius, excuse me, I'll start with Sabellus. When Sabellus was bitten, he dissolved. Totally. Into nothing. But when Nasidius was bitten, he swelled up and burst. And these, uh, these transformations were described in vivid detail in order to show off the linguistic ability of Lucan. Ovid, he had an entire work called the Metamorphoses where people transform. But two main uh, uh, instances of that that are mentioned here are Cadmus, who himself turns into a snake, and Arethusa, who herself turns into a fountain uh, while running away from a god who wants to abduct her. Dante here is going to show that he is an even better poet than these two individuals. And the reason why he thinks he is is because he claims that he is describing not only the physical metamorphosis of his characters, but also the spiritual or essential metamorphosis. He is changing the nature of these creatures. And, well, he's doing something even more profound than that, because not only is he saying that he can change the nature of a transformation, he is saying that he is transforming what an epic is. And you should think about that, because... The epics he mentions are pagan epics, Greek epics, and Roman epics. Actually, both of these are Roman. Well, this is the first Christian epic. So he is, while he describes transforming characters in his book, himself transforming the genre of epic writing. And in fact, converting it from pagan to Christian right before our eyes. Which, when I were younger, I probably wouldn't have thought was the most interesting thing in the world. And yet now, as an older person, I do think it's uh, fairly profound and very intelligent on his part. In any case, the serpent stared at him. I'll describe this now. He at the serpent, one through his wound, the other through his mouth. They are uh, now conjoined. Uh, we're smoking violently. Their smoke met. Let Lucan now be silent, where he sings of sad Sibelis and Nasidius, and wait to hear what flies off from my bow. Let Ovid now be silent, where he tells of Cadmus Arethusa, if his verse has made of one... A serpent, one a fountain. I do not envy him. He never did transmute two natures 
face to face so that both forms were ready to exchange their matter. Okay, this will be uh, just about the last thing that we have to write, the last informational slide of the day. So, remember, Lucan and Ovid change the bodies of their characters. Dante changes their very natures or essences. So he's doing more, and in, in so doing more, he's doing more with his epic itself. This is a comment on how Dante is changing the game of writing epic poetry, and that is how you make yourself relevant. You make some necessary, important uh, uh, improvement or change. This is an extraordinarily proud claim you should be aware of, and that is something that epic writers do. They make clear that they are doing something that other people cannot do, and in so saying that they are attempting something other people uh, ha have not attempted or could not do, we generally call that proud or confident or arrogant. We saw three friends at the beginning. Again, that, that theme of uh, unity and plurality. They are one group, but they are three people. It was a group of three people, just like three sodomites, just like Cerberus with his three heads. Um, and two were transformed, whereas one at the end remained untransformed. Um, this is uh, a corruption of, well, something we'll talk about when we get to the Paradiso is the idea of the Trinity, the idea of the medieval Catholic God, and how it is one and many all at once. E pluribus unum. We have that on our money. That means the one from the many. And that is a, uh, a, a very theologically difficult concept to understand. We see a corruption of the unity and plurality um, imagery with these snakes and humans. One snake, one human, they grasp onto each other, they become one themselves and yet still two. Um, and so we see a corruption of the unity slash plurality question down here. We see an obfuscation of things. We see that rather than clarity, things are getting muddled. And also just one last notice, things the smell in the Inferno is getting worse and worse the lower that we go. It is like we are getting closer and closer to the source of the feces. In any case, the last thing I want us to do today is get to the eighth Bolgia, the deceitful counselors. I want you to see what Dante says right after we lead the thieves. Be joyous, Florence. You are great indeed, for over sea and land you beat your wings, though every part or through every part of hell your name extends. And so... For next time, we will get started with the Deceitful Counselors, but for this time, we've done enough.